You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Raytheon, protecting every side of cyber. Spyware, viruses, disinformation campaigns, those are just a few of the threats posed by malicious state actors, rogue hackers, and others. Our efforts to protect critical data and improve the country's cyber capabilities proceeding at a fast enough clip? On Wednesday, October 2nd, the Washington Post gathered technologists, government officials, security experts, and other leaders in cybersecurity to discuss these rapidly evolving issues. In this segment, former Secretary of Homeland Security Michael Chertoff and former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper discuss the steps they are taking to shore up U.S. election security ahead of the 2020 race. Let's listen. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for coming this morning. I just want to join in what Chris Karate said at the outset. Uh, this is an anniversary that has a lot of meaning for us at The Post. The fact that our publisher, Fred Ryan, and our owner, Jeff Bezos, traveled all the way to Istanbul to speak on behalf of my colleague and friend, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, illustrates a commitment that they have made personally, which uh, I think all of us journalists here at The Post feel very grateful for, uh, and uh, so I just wanted to share that with you. Today we're going to talk about cybersecurity interference in our 2020 presidential elections, a very innovative new way of trying to deal with that, and we're going to talk with two of the people who are most familiar with these issues. First, uh, former, former uh, Director of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff, second, uh, former Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper. Uh, each uh, knows uh, cyber and, and uh, these issues and a difficult uh, political and legal background uh, as well as anybody who's served in government. I want to start, uh, gentlemen, with a question that's on everybody's minds uh, this week. Uh, it involves the question of interference in our elections, uh, but this is the complaint that's been raised by the still unidentified whistleblower. Uh, whose, whose complaint is now uh, before the House Intelligence Committee and, and is the subject of an intense national discussion going all the way to the issue of impeachment. Without asking you what you think about whether uh, the president should be impeached, I do want to ask you each the baseline question, whether you as experts in this area find the whistleblower's complaint, which we've now read, urgent and credible, those were the use, words that were used. And, and then second, whether you would think that it ought to be investigated <coughs> to determine whether it's accurate. Well, maybe I should start since it's <coughs> intelligence community and I'm <coughs> very familiar with um, the intelligence community uh, whistleblower protection act and, and uh, the complaints that are uh, submitted uh, with it. Uh, I would say that of all the whistleblower complaints that I ever saw uh, during my six and a half years as DNI, that this one was the best written, best prepared, uh, footnoted, <coughs> and uh, caveated as, as uh, appropriately it should be. And <coughs> the law uh, prescribes that once a whistleblower complaint is submitted, it's, it goes directly to the intelligence community inspector general which became statutory uh, during my time as DNI, and, and accordingly uh, acts uh, independently. 
The uh, inspector general makes a determination about is the complaint credible. I don't recall ever uh, having one that was declared to be uh, urgent. And so that was done. The whistleblower uh, complied meticulously with the provisions uh, of the law. And for me, it was one of the most credible, compelling uh, such complaints I, I've, ever, I've ever seen. Uh, should it be investigated? Absolutely. That's the whole premise of uh, the Whistleblower Protection Act is that uh, serious, credible uh, complaints of wrongdoing uh, should be accordingly investigated. Mike, what's your, your feeling about those same issues? Was it uh, credible, urgent, and should it be investigated? Well, I, I can't judge whether it's credible because I think you have to obviously investigate. You have to determine uh, <coughs> what the basis of knowledge is. Um, does the person, were they in a position to know certain things or not know certain things? There are probably going to be other people who would have to be talked to. What I would say is this, though. Um, obviously, it's a matter of significant concern. Any investigation ought to be uh, dispassionate, fair, thorough, and expeditious. What should not happen is people announcing the result they think they're going to get before the investigation is done, because that uh, impairs the credibility of the whole process. If I could add just one, yes. one other point, just to be clear, that the law stipulates a period of 14 days, I believe, where the inspector general uh, <coughs> can investigate the, the uh, allegation that's contained in the complaint. And that was done in this case where there was, within the time limit of 14 days, a corroboration, at least in the IG's mind, before he forwarded it. And Jim, let me ask you, because you were in the position that acting DNI Joe McGuire found himself <coughs> just after taking office, he made a decision when he received the complaint from his inspector general to go to the White House and the White House Counsel and then to the Justice Department, uh, the Office of Legal Counsel, both institutions in a sense part of the whistleblower's complaint. Do you think that was appropriate? Well, he was in a tough place. He, he had been uh, acting, acting Director of National Intelligence for about six weeks and this, uh, you know, arrives on his doorstep. So I think the way I've answered this, I've been asked, this is beginning to be an FAQ, frequently asked question, and the way I've, <laughs> I've uh, responded in the past is I think institutionally Joe did the right thing. The problem, of course, by consulting with the DOJ and the, and the White House, and he had a genuine concern about uh, you know, viola violating executive privilege, or he doesn't, have the, the, he doesn't have the authority to waive executive privilege. Now, you can argue that the cows come home well, was that the right thing to do where he's consulting with an element of the government that's implicated in the complaint? And, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a judgment call that he made. Uh, if it were me, I honestly don't know what I would have done. I trust what I would have had is a very extensive and deep conversation with my general counsel about the pros and cons of doing that. And I'm sure Joe uh, did the same thing. Mike, I want to ask you about a question that's becoming more and more central now, and that is, how can Congress compel testimony, uh, either through subpoenaed witnesses or uh, depositions, uh, other documents, in an investigation that it, it deems essential, 
but where administration officials are withholding that information. What happens next? You know, typically what's happened in the past, <clears throat> particularly when you get a subpoena, but even if Congress wants you to testify is, because they hold the power of the purse through appropriations, generally government officials go along with it because the sanction they face is the money gets cut off. Um, I guess if you're going to be technical about it, uh, what would happen is a subpoena would issue. If someone failed to appear, uh, they would then go to court. The Congress would go to court. They would get a court order mandating the person to appear. And then if the person still failed to appear, they would, in theory, be held in contempt of court. Um, the other possibility is someone could appear and decline to answer certain questions on the ground that they are privileged. Uh, that gets you into some tricky legal issues about whether um, Congress has the direct ability to impose contempt or whether Congress has to go to court. As with most, most things in the American legal system, uh, you usually wind up with a potentially extended litigation because you're dealing with unprecedented issues, and that means everybody is going to wind up being careful about how they deal with them. And would you guess, uh, based on your experience, that this issue is going to end up in the Supreme Court before it's done? It, it's quite possible. Obviously, everybody remembers back in the early 70s with the Nixon case. Um, but you know, the court, given its schedule, um, only has a certain amount of bandwidth. And in some ways, by the time it gets up to the Supreme Court, you're talking about months having gone by. So there may be a, a, a tension between the tempo of these investigations and the tempo of the court system. But again, it's a little hard to speculate because we don't we haven't yet seen a concrete dispute that emerges that is ripe for court. So I want to turn now to our, our main subject of political interference uh, going forward in the 2020 elections. Uh, and I want to invite uh, our audience here and also uh, watching this on live stream. <coughs> if you have questions, you can send them to me right to this little iPad. Uh, it's hashtag uh, post live. And I, in theory, will see them here, and I'll try to look and, and ask you any questions. But uh, let me ask Jim first, and then and then Mike, to give us a sense uh, as we head toward tw 2020 of how well prepared you think we are to protect our elections from the kind of interference that we've seen now powerfully in 2016 and, and 2018 too. Well, I. Having uh, happily left the government, uh, I, I, I still don't know. It's my impression that a lot has been done, uh, certainly among the key federal agencies, FBI, Department of Homeland Security, National Security Agency, all those that have our stakeholders and, and, and can help us. So I, I think a lot has been done over <coughs> the situation where we were in, in 2016. But you got to remember, you know, our voting apparatus is very decentralized. It's at the, done at the state and local level, not at, at the federal level. I was really taken aback uh, during the 2016 and what we were seeing the Russians doing when Jay Johnson, then Secretary of Homeland Security, reached out to voting officials, voting uh, election commissions and this sort of thing at the state level and got a lot of pushback. You know, we don't want the feds uh, messing with this sort of thing. Uh, <clears throat> so I think but having said all that, I, I, I am confident that a lot has been done uh, to make it better. If, if I may, uh, David, just make a point here, which I, uh, whenever this topic comes up, securing the voting apparatus, voting machines, 
computation of votes, uh, the transmission of votes and all that, that's hugely important. But that's, to me at least, is one bin of the problem. The other bin is what I might call, for lack of a better term, intellectual security. Meaning, how do you get people to question what they see, read, and hear on the internet? And this is where the Russians exploited us, exploited our divisiveness by using social media. Uh, social media. So that part of the problem, I'm not sure about. <clears throat> Mike, let me ask you the same thing of, of how vulnerable you think we are heading into 2020, whether the resistance that, uh, that Jim describes to federal help to state and local governments, whether that's, that's changing. Uh, and then also maybe you'd comment on the, the broader question that, that Jim raises about the way in which our information space as a whole now has been, it looks like, contaminated. So uh, first of all, I, I agree with Jim. I think that <clears throat> the federal government has been much more active, um, and I think the states have been much more willing to accept help. I think you'll hear more in some of the later panels about that. Um, I also agree that actually the machines themselves in some ways are the least vulnerable because A, they're decentralized, and B, they are normally not hooked up to the internet except very, very briefly. So to tamper with them, you'd have to get physical access. Where I think we have greater challenges are the registration databases, um, the tabulation databases, and all of the infrastructure around voting, which includes, uh, you know, how, is the power working? Is transportation working? Can people get to the polls? <clears throat> and these issues require not just preparing to raise your level of cybersecurity against hacking, but it also means resilience. If there is something that makes it difficult to vote on election day, either the database goes down and therefore you can't verify who's entitled to vote, or the trains stop running because of a cyber attack, is there a plan for what do you do next? And that's the essence of resiliency. You've got to have thought through that in advance. You have to make sure you know what the plan is, that you have the authorities, and you have the capabilities. And I think that's an area we ought to look at. On what Jim called the second bin, which is disinformation, um, I think this is a challenge that's broader than the election itself. Um, obviously, one of the approaches that the Russians and, frankly, the Chinese also take to geopolitical conflict is the information space, what they used to call active measures. And the idea here is if you can disrupt the unity of effort of the United States or Europe or other democratic countries, then basically you win without firing a shot <clears throat> because people don't trust each other and they don't trust institutions. And I think that's what we've seen over the last 10 years. In fact, it goes back uh, decades. What has changed most recently is social media and the ability to manipulate that to drive very carefully tailored messages to particular individuals. And that's an area where I, th I think we're still uh, trying to implement uh, standards and approaches that would mitigate the effect of that. And job number one is to get people to be critical in their thinking when they see a story um, and not simply to accept it as true because, quote, it's on the internet. So um, just going to this point that, that uh, Jim and you bo both now have, have dis discussed, um, 
the more that we talk about the insecurity of our election systems, in a sense, the more people have it in their mind that there's something wrong here. Yeah. Uh, a friend who runs uh, cybersecurity for one of the big social media companies said to me recently, what the <coughs> Russians really are doing is weaponizing uncertainty. That the very fact that you're uncertain whether these systems may be attacked leads to less faith in the, in the outcome. I just want to ask you, I think it's one of the hardest questions there is, is there any way to reduce that weaponized uncertainty that you can think of that's appropriate for a democratic government? Jim, Mike? I, well, I would say this. I mean, one of the uh, points that's been made repeatedly is you need to have an, a verifiable, auditable system for actually getting voting. And whether it's a paper ballot or there are various kinds of tools that are now being developed that would encrypt a copy of the ballot, the ability to assure people that if there were a dispute, it might take a little bit of time, but you could go back and you could actually manually count. I think that's an important confidence building measure. So uh, any, any thoughts? Well, I, uh, you know, I don't have any uh, silver bullet uh, suggestion here other than imploring people to uh, <clears throat> think critically, try to corroborate the information they're absorbing, um, pick and choose your sources, that sort of thing. Um, I've often <clears throat> fantasized about some uh, sort of uh, national fact checker that uh, unassociated with the government, perhaps. I, I don't know quite how you'd constitute this, that the fact checker would be seen as, as uniformly and universally credible, but some body like that that uh, could verify or refute <coughs> what is being said out there, on, on, uh, particularly on social media. It's, it's tricky. We don't want a single authority telling us what's true and what isn't. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like Big Brother, but George there's got to be a, a solution. So I want to get to um, something that's really encouraging that you're both involved in. And it's, it's a creative effort to deal with this problem and draw the public in. Uh, it's called Cyberdome. And, and maybe I could ask each of you just to explain the, the basic idea of this, um, what sorts of services Cyberdome will offer to candidates around the country in 2020 and hopefully for many years to come. Jim, why don't you start that off? Well, uh, I was approached by this group, which uh, is a group of citizens, uh, public-spirited, public-minded citizens who uh, have aligned themselves with uh, cybersecurity experts and are uh, put together an organization which uh, is designed to, on a bipartisan basis uh, support and assist campaigns and particularly the two national committees to secure themselves. Uh, it's, it's not a government thing and they're seeking uh, funding outside uh, the government and Mike and I have uh, both approached about it and uh, are serving on their uh, you know, board, of, board of advisors. Mike? <coughs> Yeah, the idea here is a nonprofit organization that will offer free of charge to campaigns cybersecurity advice. Now, we've had campaigns hacked, you know, for years. I mean, I remember back in 2008, campaigns were hacked. What was different in 2016 is what they call doxing. Not only were the campaigns hacked by foreigners in order to see what the campaign was thinking about from a policy standpoint, 
but actually some of the content was disseminated by the Russians and put out there in the run-up to the 2016 election in a way, again, to try to unnerve and demoralize the Democratic uh, uh, Party and supporters. So that, I think, took the weaponization to a new level. And part of what we're trying to do is get the campaigns to raise their game when it comes to protecting against these kinds of intrusions, which can then be, as has been said, weaponized against them. So um, I urge people to take a look uh, at what this Cyberdome is, is proposing. Um, it, it's a creative idea. It's not the government doing it, but, but private citizens uh, in, in a way that should make it easier for people to draw on help. Uh, and as we think about how we're going to protect our democracy, which turns out to be more fragile than we realized, uh, this is a pretty good idea. And it's, I'm really pleased to have uh, these two uh, people who are associated with it uh, here with us. I want to ask a, 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 another question that uh, lurks under the surface of our national debate now. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard one. But there are a lot of people out there, uh, it's, it's clear, who think that there's something that they call the deep state. And they think of probably of people like the two of you, experienced national security, uh, not no uh, criticism intended, but they think of experienced national security officials, people like, like Jim Clapper, who served, if I remember, over 50 years as an intelligence officer one way or another. They think about Mike Chertoff, who's been a U.S. attorney, who's served in various agencies, who's seen every part of our, of our government. And they, they worry that, that you've got a kind of a hidden hand on the nation's steering wheel. Uh, that surfaced in the whistleblower complaint. People say, what the heck's this CIA guy doing, you know, seconded to the NSC staff uh, investigating the president? So I'd be, I think it'd be really interesting for people if, if each of you would just respond from your, this long experience you've had uh, to, the, to this argument that, that's out there in America. And, and what, what is it, Jim, that you'd want to say? Well, uh, I never heard of the term deep state. Uh, maybe I was in you know, ignorant bliss or something, but I never heard of that until the campaign and afterwards. Uh, there is, uh, allegedly, this is a conspiracy of uh, career government uh, public servants who somehow organize themselves uh, uh, into a conspiracy to uh, undermine or, or overthrow uh, the president, which on its face is, uh, is ridiculous. You know, the intelligence community, uh, it's almost uh, holy writ, you know, tr truth to power and uh, un under whatever difficult circumstances that may be, it, even if the power ignores the truth, they still have to keep telling it. And, my experience has been that, sure, people in the intelligence community, just they're citizens like everybody else, they have their political views, but they, again, my observation has been consistently, they park those p political preferences at the door before they walk in uh, to, to the office. So uh, now, unfortunately, <coughs> this recent whistleblower uh, complaint coming from a member of the intelligence community just fuels that conspiratorial fire that there is such a thing as the deep state. So deep state is a concept that really comes out of an di entirely di different context. It has to do with <coughs> countries where the military is so powerful they also control a lot of the industrial base. If you look at, for example, the Revolutionary Guard 
in Iran, they actually, in addition to having military capability, they actually control industry. We don't have any of that here, as Jim knows. Our military is completely under civilian control, and they stay in their lane. Likewise, the intelligence community is very, very carefully hedged with a lot of rules, and we have courts that supervise almost everything. And if you look at some of the history, for example, of surveillance programs and the, and the controversy that's arisen about those, those have always occurred because somebody was uncomfortable with the decision being made, and then it got to court, perhaps, or Congress changed the rule. So we are kind of the opposite of a deep state. Now, I understand Americans traditionally have had a certain suspicion of government. Um, but uh, that's not so much the question of the civil service as I think it is more generally a question of not having government overstep its role with the private sector. And our solution in our Constitution is we break the government into three parts, and we also have federalism. What people miss sometimes is much of the real power is at the state level uh, in terms of the police and the enforcement mechanisms. And that's one of the things that guarantees that our government cannot overstep or really commit misconduct. Final question. Again, one I think um, every member of this audience probably would want me to, to ask you. What's the damage to our national security uh, agencies, to the people of the CIA, <coughs> other intel agencies, the FBI that you work with closely, Mike, uh, of this period in which you have the president calling the whistleblower, CIA officer, a spy and accusing him of treason? What, what damage does that do to the people who work for these agencies and also to the partners we have around the world uh, who are our essential liaison? Well, obviously, it's not good. Uh, it's uh, not a good thing, uh, and I think it affects you know, a lot of people in the intelligence community. But I have to say, it's a dangerous thing to try to characterize uh, another FAQ, you know, what's the morale of the intelligence community? Well, the intelligence community is a large, complex, globally dispersed enterprise, and there are thousands of people in the intelligence community who aren't affected by this stuff at all. So if you're at uh, Mission Ground Station someplace, you're in Denver or Menwith Hill or Pine Gap, or you're uh, in Embassy X someplace as an intelligence officer, you're just there doing your job. And you're just not affected by this. this. So the specific elements that are really directly affected within the intelligence community are, of course, my old office, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, obviously the agency, CIA, and the FBI. It does have effect on them, but there are you know, vast parts of the intelligence community that just aren't directly affected. Now, just because they are a part of the intelligence community and are getting, uh, you know, pretty regular bad-mouthing, uh, that's not good for morale. And it, it isn't good as well for our intelligence partners who share with us uh, in good faith, uh, you know, information that they believe uh, is germane to our, our national security. Mike. I guess I'd say two things. Um, my observation is that, by and large, the agencies um, you know, when there are ups and downs and controversies, <clears throat> uh, people still go about their business professionally. And the vast majority are dedicated to their work. And whether things are uncomfortable or not, it's not going to change the mission. The other thing I will say is 
generally, and I think Jim will, will attest to this, our relations with our good partners overseas at an operational level have generally um, been able to resist the vicissitudes of politics. Even when the politicians are each, at each other's throats, uh, the professionals, particularly those in the security space, know how to work together and know how to trust each other. Um, so th this will pass, but I, I would leave you with this thought. I happen to be chairman of the Board of Freedom House, which was set up you know, over 50 years ago to promote freedom around the world. People look to the US as a beacon for the values of democracy and freedom and the rule of law. And when we stand for that, not only do we earn friends, but we actually earn admirers. And I remember meeting people who, uh, when I was in office in Central and Eastern Europe, who had been high school students during the Cold War and under the boot of the Soviet Union. And they said to me when I met them many years later, the fact that Americans like Ronald Reagan spoke up for freedom, tear down this wall, inspired us to keep strong and to keep struggling for freedom. And that is one of the most powerful weapons we have, and it would be a shame to lose it. So uh, we've had two of the very best people in national security to kick off our discussion this morning of cybersecurity. Please join me in thanking both uh, Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.